Friends, I invite you to be seated. Our worship series continues today in this good enough theme, looking at those ways that we might escape from the never-ending movement towards perfection, the exhausting drive to be perfect all of the time and everywhere. We're trying to find ways to rest along the way, to see how we might take faithful small steps, find growth that is sustainable and holy. Now, we're following along with a book by uh, two different authors, Kate Bowler being one of them, called Good Enough, and we have a number of copies in the narthex if you'd like to join with us. It's wonderfully adaptable, so while there are 40 readings intended for the 40 days of Lent, you can jump in at any time. You can read them in any order. Um, and if you want, there's also a guide that goes with it with some discussion questions, some extra scripture reading to help supplement it a little bit. And if you'd like, you're welcome to come and participate in either of our small discussion groups that are happening every week, one on Tuesday nights at 7.15 p.m. over Zoom, the other Wednesdays at 1 o'clock. Those are uh, spaces to reflect with one another on this journey of how we can accept and welcome ourselves as we are and where we are on this journey towards a holy, good enough faith. Now, I do want to make particularly clear that if you come to one of those groups, you're welcome to be reading the book along with us, but you don't have to be. If you'd just like a place to connect and talk with one another, you are welcome there. So we hope that you'll consider joining us. And now this morning, we are turning to this gospel story about growing and flourishing sometime, somehow. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. What is it that we do when the world crumbles beneath us? Three years ago, as part of a bit of a whirlwind tour around the better part of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, Jennifer and I took a few hours one evening to press on to a smallish boat with a few dozen other people to cruise along a 15-mile stretch of the Lake Superior coastline and to see the famous painted, uh, excuse me, pictured rocks. The rocks, these massive stands, Sandstone cliffs carved by wind and water with these beautiful, colorful styrations all the way up and down their height were just absolutely gorgeous. And there was a guide on the boat as we went pointing out the sights, an arch here or a cave there, a castle turret over there. And with each one, we would all lean over top of one another to take pictures that we knew could never capture the majesty we witnessed in person. You've already put up one of the pictures that I took. In this first one, you can see the rocks almost form a face in profile if you look at it hard enough. Here's another one. This one shows one of the arches that almost looks like the cliff reached out to dip a toe in the water. It was astounding. Every angle of these cliffs was gorgeous along the whole 15-mile stretch. And yet somehow, the most memorable part of the cruise for me was when the guide stopped to talk about a single tree growing on the edge of the cliff, a tree that had done something incredible. Let's take a look. It's in this picture here. It's the one near to the center. 
Now, for years, this tree was no doubt just one of a thousand trees, all growing along the top of the pictured rocks, until one day the sandstone began eroding away underneath it. And all too quickly, this one tree was suddenly left teetering on a precarious pillar at the edge of the water. It's a little bit tricky to see in the picture because it was hard to capture, but if you see, that tree is the only tree standing on the top of this skinny little rock pillar. It's a dangerous and inhospitable place for a tree to be. In fact, though it's even harder to see this in the picture, you can actually see how the tree's roots stretch over the gap from the pillar to the main cliff because there's not enough soil and nutrition to support the tree where it is on that pillar. I would have never thought that a tree could survive and even flourish in such conditions. After the guide had pointed all of this out and we began to again move down the coastline in the boat, Jennifer turned to me and she said under her breath, you're going to use this in a sermon one day, aren't you? And I looked back at her and I said, well, of course I am. It took three years, but I am a man of my word. In one of the Good Enough devotionals in the book that we're using this Lent, Kate Bowler talks about how she stopped her family once on a long hike, much to their dismay, to point out a tree that she had noticed had snapped at its base and fallen into a chasm and yet somehow survived, survived enough to grow its way upward again. She was transfixed and she announced loudly to her six-year-old, this tree made a series of important choices. Now, one lesson here might be to be wary of exploring nature with preachers because we're always on the lookout for good illustrations. But we can't help the fact that these trees, the ones that manage to grow and thrive against all odds, can strike a chord deep within us. Perhaps it's because we know what it's like to have the ground underneath us suddenly be washed away, to suddenly be fighting for balance and wondering if this could be it knowing that no one can blame the tree that topples under such terrible conditions. Had I visited the pictured rocks just a few years earlier, right after the rocks had all worn away from under this tree and it wasn't sure that it could make it, well, I might have even suggested that it was pointless to fight the inevitable. But that tree was there and thriving as we floated by that day, Because it made two important choices. It stayed rooted and it stayed put. It knew where its strength came from, so it stretched as far as it needed to bury even just its fingertips in the life-giving soil. And it knew that just because things had become precarious and uncertain didn't mean that it didn't belong there. The parable of the tree might be That even when everything seems lost and we are teetering at the very brink of the end, we can still thrive in time. And that God is not done with us yet. As today's gospel reading begins, some of Jesus' followers are trying to find their footing in an unstable world. They are shaken and trying to make sense of a recent tragedy where Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the region, had killed a group of Galileans who were offering sacrifices in innocent religious practice and not something that made them deserving of an untimely death. 
And they tell Jesus, and he responds with a rhetorical question that immediately eliminates one potential rationalization for this senseless violence, asking those, the crowd around him, do you think this happened to them because they were bad people, because they had sinned and deserved it? No, Jesus says, no. And he continues with a second example, about 18, who had died in the fall of a tower in the city of Siloam, which was truly just an awful and unpredictable accident, as happens sometimes. Jesus is making it clear that none of his followers are to blame the victims of calamities or to entertain the idea that tragedies follow some sort of careful moral logic. Sometimes terrible things just happen. But what are we supposed to do when we know that death can arrive unpredictably and without discretion? Jesus says in response to both tragedies, I tell you, unless you repent, unless you change your hearts and lives, you will die as they did. He suggests that repentance might be how we escape the potential meaninglessness of life's tragedies. Not that we can avoid adversity and calamity altogether, but that repentance can give us somewhere else to draw our, out our life's meaning and purpose. This may be a surprising suggestion for those of us who are accustomed to thinking of repentance as a straightforward accounting of and apology for all the things that we've ever done wrong. This isn't an inadequate uh, understanding of repentance, just an anemic one. The translation in our text, which describes repentance as a change in our hearts and in our lives, can be helpful in this way. Repentance, and especially in Luke's gospel, repentance is an utter transformation of our thinking and our living, one that involves a complete reorientation away from the things that inhibit and destroy life to the one who offers life in abundance. Repentance is like a tree that knows where its strength comes from, reaching and straining to root itself in the life-giving nurture of the divine soil. To illustrate this, Jesus tells a parable. There once was a man who owned a fig tree which was planted in his vineyard, Jesus says. And this man comes to it one day looking for fruit, but there were no figs to be found on the tree. And so the man says to his gardener, for three years I've been looking for fruit on this tree, and I've never found any. It's a waste of good soil. Cut it down. But the gardener responds, sir, give it one more year, and I will put fertilizer around it. Maybe it will produce next year. If not, well, then you can cut it down. As with any parable, this story is meant to provoke the imagination, to get us asking good questions by confounding our expectations and challenging our assumptions. And so rarely does this mean that the characters in the parable are meant to be exact representations of anybody, including God. More frequently, do the characters embody some traits that we might recognize, sometimes drawn out to the extreme, that can help us grasp at deeper truths about who God is and how we should live. 
And so if we begin to look for some of these deeper truths, if we begin where the story begins, we have a man who owns a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He's upset that his fig tree hasn't fruited after three barren years, which may or may not be a reasonable expectation. We don't know anything about this fig tree, including whether it's a mature tree that has stopped producing at some point or whether it's a juvenile tree that hasn't yet started producing. And it may be important to know that young fig trees typically take four to six years before they produce their first fig crop. Now, we might like to hope that the landowner here is making decisions based on a solid understanding of horticultural principles. But this may be challenged by his claim to the gardener that the tree is wasting the soil that it's growing in. Because while the tree may have never had any figs, or at least not for three years, it wasn't planted there to yield figs except as a bonus. It was planted in a vineyard. And in ancient farming practices, fig trees were planted in vineyards to act as a natural trellis for the grape vines to climb up. And even a barren tree standing tall could fulfill that purpose. Not to mention that if the landowner really cared about the dirt the tree was growing in, that if he really wanted to reclaim that spot of land for grapevines, well, he should have asked the gardener to dig the tree up by its roots instead of cutting it down. Because cutting it down would leave a stump that would surely go ahead and sprout the next year, beginning a timeline of four to six more years before producing any figs. And so in the end, it seems that the landowner may not have the best expectations, insisting that the tree bear fruit within three years or be cut to the ground. His whole timeline feels a little bit arbitrary, if not just an overreaction. And yet, I can recognize some of my own very human tendencies there in his response. Who among us doesn't know what it's like to weary through empty and fruitless season after season until we're so tired of hopelessly hoping that we can't imagine anything better to do than just pack it all in, cut it all down, and head home? But the landowner, looking to put an end to it all, is met with a counterpoint. Give it Another year, the gardener says. Even here, with some tending and some care, this tree may be able to flourish. It seems to be a response born of compassion. Even when the gardener allows himself to imagine that the tree may still falter, it may not fruit and be cut down the next year, well, even then, he cannot seem to imagine putting his own hand to the axe. The landowner has told him to cut down the tree, and he responds by saying, well, if it doesn't fruit next year, well, then you can cut it down. The gardener has compassion and empathy for the tree and knows what it means to garden. The tree might yet still thrive. Now, there's no guarantee because there never is, at least not in gardening, but in time, it could happen. Gardening takes patience because the seasons only come around once a year. 
Life may be short, but there may still be time enough to wait and see what might come. Give it another year, the gardener urges. The gardener will take time to pack manure around the border of the tree, and somehow resting in that foul substance may be a nourishment to the tree. The same can sometimes be true for us, though not every hardship is a blessing in the same way that not all poop is good fertilizer. It's probably not even that helpful to expend our energy trying to sort out the dung from the compost, just enough to know that with enough time, the tree will find that even in this most miserable and desolate place, there is a gardener tending carefully to its growth. Even when the world around it feels yicky and terrible, when it feels like it might be crumbling beneath it, the gardener is not finished. Give it another year, the gardener says. The parable of the tree might be that even when everything seems lost and we are teetering on the very brink of the end, we can still thrive in time. Give it another year because God's not done with us yet. When our relationships fracture or our families splinter, give it another year. God might provide depths of strength and support from friends we didn't know we had because God's not done with us yet. When sickness intrudes into our daily living or the cloud of grief seems impenetrable, well, give it another year. God may help us to cherish the simplicity of every short moment to come and the moments of those pass by because God's not done with us yet. When our finances are stretched thin or the weight of debt presses down, give it another year. God may provide fortitude enough to demand living wages and affordable education for all people because God is not done with us yet. And when the world is caught up in armed conflict and the violence spills out over whole countries and more, well, give it another year because God may yet teach us how to welcome the refugee and work for peace because God is not done with us yet. And when racism and racial inequality persist in our justice system and across the laws of our country and every form of our society, we'll give it another year because God may yet show us what it means to stand for equality and hold our country true to its proven and staked ideals because God is not done with us yet. And when our denomination is in turmoil and readying to fracture and splinter over human sexuality, we'll give it another year, because God may yet show us how to welcome all people, including our queer brothers and sisters, into the body of Christ, because God is not done with us yet. When the future seems bleak and uncertainty clouds the future for our life together, give it another year. God may yet show us how to hold true to our faith, true to the mission and ministry to which we are called, and hold on for tomorrow, because God is not done with us yet. When the very ground erodes beneath our feet and we are left teetering on a, pre a precarious pillar at the cliff's edge, give it another year. Stretch out for the life-giving soil of God and hold on because God's not done with us yet. And should the whole world finally give way, leaving nothing but air beneath us, give it another year. 
our roots may yet hang on, and we might be held by nothing more than the very hand of God beneath us, because God's not done with us yet. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I invite us to continue in worship this morning. Our next song.